This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, we've been covering a lot of blockbusters lately on the podcast. So I just want to know, are you ready for a good long, dark (laughs) night of the soul? Quite a palate cleanser that, I mean, is anyone truly ready for a long, dark night of the soul? I mean, probably fair to say that nobody is, but the characters that we're going to be talking about in this week's movies certainly end up running up against them anyway. So we might as well meet that long, dark night of the soul with grace. Well, it's an episode tailor-made for St. John of the Cross. We've got two faith-themed films to talk about this week. First up is Godland, a Danish film about a young priest in the frozen north contending with his faith. And following that, we're going to be discussing Eric Romare's My Night at Mods, in which a devout Catholic man comes up against uh, a, a woman who challenges his faith. Definitely for the better, I think, but we'll have to discuss that on episode 372 of Seeing and Believing. So here we are, Sarah. We're a little ways into Lent now uh, here at Seeing and Believing. So it seems like maybe now's the time to get into a little bit of austere movies about religion. So <laughs> it seems appropriate. Tis the season, as they say. Yes, it is. Yeah. So we've got a pretty full episode. We're going to be talking about uh, Eric Romare's My Night at Mods for the Watchlist segment. We're going to be talking about the Danish film Godland uh, here in the first segment. We're also going to be sharing a special treat. Sarah, you were at the True False Film Festival over the weekend, saw tons of movies. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of amazed that you're still lucid and coherent right now, given (laughs) how busy you've been over the last few days. So well done on that. (laughs) Thank you. I'm kind of surprised that I am as lucid and coherent as I am as well. But I mean, I guess that's the power of truly good cinema. Yeah, well, uh, you know, whitens your teeth while you sleep as well. (laughs) Sarah's going to be sharing some of her uh, reactions to the films that she saw over that weekend. So we're looking forward to that too. But let's Take a detour from that, from the power of cinema, and just veer up to the frozen north for austere interrogations of Christian belief and piety, shall we? Let's do it. (laughs) So, Heinor Palmason's Godland is the latest in a proud tradition that goes back at least to Ingmar Bergman, if not before. It follows a young Danish priest named Lucas in the late 1800s as he travels to the unforgiving wilderness of Iceland to build a church and establish a parish on its eastern coast. He starts out filled with the idealistic fire of the apostles, or so he thinks, ambitiously choosing to land on the opposite side of the island and trek across the whole landscape as a way to take the measure of the countryside and maybe himself into the bargain. But his passion curdles in the face of the harsh local people and the even harsher landscape. 
So the inspiration for Godland, according to the opening titles for the film, Sarah, um, are a half dozen 19th century photographs that were unearthed and are currently believed to be the first photographs ever taken of Iceland and the Icelandic people. So maybe that'd be a good place for us to start with this film's images. Uh, so Sarah, what, how do you think Palmason uses imagery to unfold this story of faith, spiritual pride, and mankind's place in creation. Oh, man. Um, it's remarkable. This is a gorgeous movie. I'm just going to say that right up front because I think it's absolutely beautiful. And you can get the sense for the inspiration for the film in the way that it's been shot and framed. Um one of the things that I noticed very early on is there are a lot of very stark profile shots as someone is kind of walking along a landscape, walking to and fro, walking along their errands, journeying across uh, Iceland. And so much of the time, those shots are framed in very stark profile where the character is walking perpendicularly to the camera. Um, and that kind of lends the movie a sense of rigidity which I think works here. It, it feels a little bit flat because of the way that the images have been composed. You have your background and then you have the characters in the middle ground and they're all work, walking along the same plane um, across at cross angles to the camera lens. But that doesn't mean that the movie isn't deep. I think that it means that the movie is very much in tune with what its main character, how he approaches the world and how he believes he has been sent to be in this land. Um, and so I loved it because it, it kind of demonstrated a sense of complexity and that simplicity for me. And it also demonstrated um, just an awareness of how this character approaches the world without necessarily condoning it. And I think we can get into the faith that this priest practices um, as we talk about the movie. But in terms of the craft, it just it's very deceptively simple and it looks very harsh. But the more I looked, the more I found there to love, especially about the setting and about the people that this priest encounters. So I'm curious to know if you had a similar reaction. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an extremely cinematic film. And by what by that I mean that I feel like it really benefits a lot from being seen on the big screen in the mm -hmm. theater. There's this one, you know, the the way that Palmason shoots everything against the the landscape of Iceland, you know, stark but also, you know, beautiful, um, is really something to see and and goes a long way toward making a great case for cinema's power just in kind of capturing locales mm -hmm. and people in them and just the the sheer wonder that's possible with that, especially after the last couple of weeks of us reviewing new releases that are, you know, very glossy, expensive looking CGI filled blockbusters, seeing a movie like this that is smaller scale, but doesn't feel smaller scale because it's all on location shooting in the Icelandic countryside. And it's just uh, awe inspiring. And I think that's the point too. Palmerson wants to instill awe in the viewer because, I mean, it's right there in the title, Godland. The the Icelandic landscape here is almost uh, there. There's a sense of the the divine in the landscape, by which I mean like um, as this priest contends with <laughs> the Icelandic landscape itself, 
uh, you get the sense that he's undergoing a testing by God, mm-hmm. or at least that's the way he's receiving the experience. Mm-hmm. And that the, the audience can't really buy into that experience unless we are also kind of awed by the surroundings and just how um, gorgeous they are, but also how austere they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that... Holmson is able to do solely through these these images. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the word capturing because that's kind of how I felt about the way that Lucas, the priest, he's played by Elliot Cross at Hova. Um, that's kind of the way that he approaches his own craft. So he's a priest, but he's also a photographer. He's got this gigantic like 19th century camera that he's lugging around on his back. It's very unwieldy. And every so often he stops and kind of forces everybody else around him to stop with him and stare into the camera for long periods of time so that he can take an exposure. And I'm not familiar with the technology. I just know that it's complicated and it's difficult. And the movie shows us that it is because he ends up getting frustrated at one point with his inability to work his camera because of the conditions around him. But every time he pulled out that camera, I was kind of struck by the fact that he's not really looking at the people he's photographing. He's trying to find a picture. I think at one point he says, like he's looking for an image. He's looking for a landscape. He's, He's attempting to find a picture, but he's not really finding the people within that picture at all. He's sort of forcing them to pose the way that he wants them to pose. And he's only willing to take photos of certain people. And he won't spare the time or the energy or the supplies in order to be able to take a photograph for anybody that he doesn't particularly care for, which is not very priest-like of him, I think. Hmm. Um, And I think we can get into that too. But there's this notion of him trying to capture an image, which I think implies the idea of forcing an image into a space and kind of trying to tame it. And it feels as though this priest has not managed to fully grasp the idea that Iceland can't really be tamed. And it certainly can't be tamed by just one man and by by just himself. He is just one person against the elements. And he's contending with God and he's contending with the country and he's contending with the people that live there. But I don't think that's really his calling. And I think that the film is cognizant of that, but I'm not entirely sure that he ever fully picks up on that distinction either. Yeah, I really like the how perceptive this film is about how uh a mission can go awry like uh when when missionaries when when christian missionaries go out there's a certain type of missionary who seeks not so much to bring the good news to other people as they seek to uh, take the people they're coming to and just sort of like cram them into a Christian mold. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get the sense that Lucas is kind of viewing his own mission in that way. It's not so much he wants to enlarge uh, the the spiritual world of, of these people and share the good things he has with them so much as he just wants to, he, he wants to tame it. He wants to make it, he wants to claim it for the church rather than bring the church to them. Mm-hmm. And that I think is a really perceptive element of this film. It made me think a, a little bit about uh, one character from the Flannery O'Connor novel, The Violent Barrett Away, where um, there's a, a man of God in that uh, book who it talks about how 
another character fears him because he senses that the the this uh, minister's attempts to convert him are an attempt to to capture him and put him inside his own head. Hmm. And I feel like that's sort of what Lucas is doing too. He wants to take this landscape, he wants to take these people and he just wants to kind of categorize them and and put them in their own little uh, uh, compartments in his little photograph box and uh, make them all kind of follow the church's rules. And as the film unfolds, we kind of see how both the land and the people stubbornly resist that and also how that uh his inability to to do that in turn kind of twists lucas himself into uh ever increasingly uh unpriestly <laughs> forms yeah yeah well it feels as though his approach is rigid from the very beginning and the land just sort of brings that out of him but i feel like i got a good sense for him and his character um, pretty early on when he urges his guides to do something recklessly dangerous in order to get to his destination in time. Um, One of his guides knows the land, understands it, understands the hazards um, of the natural world that they're moving through, and warns him against moving forward and just stopping, taking a break, giving the animals a chance to rest. And Lucas doesn't like this guy for whatever reason. Like I had a difficult time fully understanding his strong distaste for this character because I actually really quite liked this character. Um, But this character says one thing and Lucas says, well, I'm not going to abide by that because I am a priest and I know better. And that leads to some pretty awful consequences for the party as, as they travel across the land. They haven't even gotten to their destination yet. He hasn't even been installed as a priest at this point, and he's still managing to lead other people astray purely by virtue of the fact that he has money and he has the influence in order to be able to get them to do what he wants them to do. And I think things just kind of spiral out of control from there. Um, I think it's also really telling that he never really learns Icelandic either. I think he he starts trying to take lessons in Icelandic, but he's speaking Danish the entire time. And everybody else around him is sort of code switching back and forth between Icelandic and Danish, depending on the situation that they're in. But this guy is just, he's so uninterested in the people around him because he's only interested in capturing those images and then sort of molding them into his own image that he's unable to see the worth and the value of the other people around him who are there to worship God in their own way and are there to exist in their own way, which they've developed over thousands of years. Like he's, he's just an interloper essentially. And I think the movie never really loses sight of that. Um, so one of the things that I love is that the movie is very oh, keenly aware of when a character is speaking one language versus the other. And then all of the titles are also in both Danish and in Icelandic too, just kind of presenting both as being valid ways of approaching the word and approaching the world. But if you start to favor one over the other, then things start to get a little bit dicey. Yeah, with the language barrier, it's it's really telling that uh, in conversations with 
well, conversations, in exchanges with Ragnar. Lucas will, you know, Ragnar will be talking to him in Icelandic, and Lucas will say, I don't understand you, which, true enough, Lucas, and maybe even truer than even you realize, mm-hmm. is that he doesn't understand, not just his language, he just doesn't understand Ragnar, he doesn't understand the people that he's ostensibly there to serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's there for reasons of his own. Mm-hmm. And that becomes clearer and clearer as the movie goes on. And I really like that you brought Ragnar up because Ragnar is sort of this this figure who represents sort of the other who is just very difficult to love for whatever reason for Lucas. He just has a hard time loving uh, his neighbor in the person of Ragnar. And the the more he's around Ragnar, the more he just exudes contempt for him Mm -hmm. and it's not again like you said it's not entirely clear why ragnar's just he's a guide he's not the most outgoing person in the world but he's not you know there's nothing particularly uh he's not an objectionable Uh, objectionable Yeah. yeah there's nothing particularly objectionable about him and yet there's there's this one uh scene probably my favorite in the entire one where uh they're building the church um, and Ragnar seems to have a, an earnest question for Lucas. He's like, how can I become a man of God? Mm-hmm. Which, if you're a missionary, it's like, yes, that is exactly the question I want you to ask. Let me drop everything and talk to you about what must you do to be saved, essentially. And Lucas's response is to just kind of keep writing, you know, keep doing whatever uh, little busy work he's doing and just sort of like grumble answers through it through an interpreter Mm -hmm. uh not even looking at ragnar and it's such a telling scene both for the miss the the opportunity that just passes him by um and also the just the kind of a person kind of a priest lucas is yeah i think it's telling that lucas isn't interested in even preaching or doing mass for his um for his congregation until after the church has been completely built even though there's very clearly a desire for that shepherding and that nurturing and, and you know, for someone to step in and be their priest for them. There's a wedding and he's unwilling to officiate it because the walls are, aren't on the church because he, I, I suppose he just thinks that you can't have a church without walls, which is a completely ridiculous thing to do. You, you get the sense that his Christianity is a set of rules and regulations for him more than anything. Very much so. And so as as the story progresses, and it's not really even so much of like a, a, a linear plot it's almost just following this guy as he travels across iceland and then starts to settle or not really settle but you know come to live um near the area where he's he's building this church um you kind of get the sense that he's he's completely unwilling to shake his own picture of what a church should be and what christianity should be and he's already shut out the rest of the people who live there unless they're danish because he assumes that only the danes will be able to follow the form of christianity that he's preaching and he's not even really preaching it like like you mentioned ragnar asks how do i become a man of god and lucas doesn't understand the question at first both because of the language barrier and because he doesn't really understand what Ragnar is asking after. And then he begrudges Ragnar his answers. And at that point, that that kind of felt like a turning point to me. I found the scene to be very good and also incredibly heartbreaking because there's just so much that Lucas is not able to see because he's just so caught up in what he's writing. Um, But as the movie progresses beyond that, Lucas 
continues to look inward and further inward, and he's only really able to see himself. There's an exchange later in the film where one character says, like, starts to confess their sins to him. And they they start with something relatively small, and then they start working their way up to worse and worse sins. You know, I laughed at someone who was injured. Pray for me. And there's this this ongoing refrain of confession of sin and then pray for me confession of sin and then pray for me and that monologue is delivered in one take with the camera looking at that character straight in the eye very much like the photographs that lucas is taking as he's walking across iceland but lucas is so caught up in what this character has taken from him that he's unable to see that image in his own head he can only see the loss And I think that is the biggest tragedy of all, honestly, is the outcome of that scene, because this is someone who is completely and totally penitent, has recognized that they have done other people wrong, is willing to admit that wrongdoing and also forgive Lucas what he's done to them up until that point. And Lucas is unwilling to forgive and unwilling to accept that this person might potentially understand the gospel a lot better than he does. And that leads to a breaking point. Um, I don't know, like it it was heartbreaking. And I loved that scene, especially up through that pray for me, like repetition, because it felt so knowledgeable and understanding about the fact that repentance is something that you don't just do once and then you're over and done with it. You know, it's it's a constant return. Like repentance has the word, has has that prefix re in it. You're redoing it over and over and over again. And this character gets that. And Lucas just doesn't. And I don't know, it's, it's a, a remarkable portrait of a very bad priest. And I, I found it very difficult to watch, but also just so smart about the kinds of abuse that that sort of religion can engender. Portrait is a really good word to use as well. You you mentioned that confession scene is is shot a lot like these uh, photographic portraits that Lucas is taking. And there's a, a sequence, uh, I think it's pre- just preceding that that scene where we get a, a series of shots of the characters that Lucas has met over the course of the entire film, starting with the uh, the farming family that he's staying with, the you know a, a daughter on her horse, uh, the the older daughter um, standing in front of the house, um, the hiking party that uh, guided him across the wilderness, all the way back to the superior his superior in the church who sent him on the mission in the first place, and they're they're all kind of. Um, shot in a portrait style. These aren't literally the photographs that he took. It's it's meant to call back to them, however. And then there's another shot that we get of Lucas himself uh, a little bit later, where he's you know he's just fallen in the mud and gotten smeared with this you know this black volcanic mud of Iceland, and it's smeared across his face. And then he looks into the camera and he's captured. Mm-hmm. He's uh, captured in portrait for us. And in that way, Palmerston is suggesting that these photographs that Lucas takes, they are a way for him to sort of capture and control, but they also reveal. Mm -hmm. And in that shot of Lucas, we get a revelation of what exactly he, he always has been, or at least what he has become. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's also telling that the reverse shot of Lucas looking down the camera with mud smeared on his face, the reverse shot is of a dog that's barking at him. And that dog kind of <laughs> serves as sort of a conscience for him in that moment as well. Um, so it's not just we see him, but it's also that, you know, God sees what Lucas has done as well um, without putting too fine a point on it or having like one of the Icelandic characters, you know, pop out of the bushes and say, like, I know what you've done and I, I see your sin. Um, it's, a, it's a lot more subtle than that. And it's also, I don't know, it, it, it feels a little bit more searing because we don't need to have any of the other characters recognize Lucas's sins. It's enough that he sees that he's sinned and that he's messed up. And that he is kind of forced to confront himself in that moment. And then what's really important is is what happens afterwards. Like, is he going to repent and return? Or is he going to um, keep doing what he's been doing this entire time? Um, and I appreciate that the movie doesn't really spare us from the consequences of his actions all that much either. I think that it would be a bit of a cop out if it were, you know, an easy answer that's easily buttoned up. And Godland isn't the kind of movie that's going to do that. You know, it's going to give you these big grand vistas, but it's also going to recognize that this is a very hard land and a hard man who is trying to exist and sort of capture and tame this hard land. And once you get somebody like that in a place like that, something's got to give. And odds are it's probably not going to be the mountain that's going to do that. (laughs) Hard lands and hard men. That's kind of, it's, it made me think a little bit of uh, the films of uh, Werner Herzog. You Mm -hmm. think of Mm -hmm. Aguirre, the Wrath of God, where again, it's a a very unforgiving environment uh, that's sort of crashes up against uh, the will of one person to sort of master it in some way. That's a very Herzogian vision. Although I feel like Godland, the way that the Icelandic landscape appears in this film is, it feels like there's there's a much more intentional effort to portray it as explicitly, there, there's a cosmic dimension to it in, in a way that I don't see in uh, Herzog as much. One of my favorite shots is uh, we get this long zoom where uh, Lucas's party, they're sort of trekking across this this hillside or this mountainside and we start zoomed in and then we zoom out farther and farther and farther. And we zoom out so far that they're basically invisible. And this is on the big screen. I can't imagine watching this on a small screen where you lose that sense of scale, but on the big screen, just being so far in and then coming so zooming so far out that the human beings become utterly insignificant in on screen is just, it's a really remarkable shot. Yeah, yeah, it's tremendous. And the movie's packed with remarkable shots like that, too. So I I mentioned at the top that there are a lot of shots of people in profile, moving in profile back and forth across the landscape. But the camera's dynamic, too. It's just very patient about it. So there are at least two scenes. There might be a third that um, I can think of off the top of my head where the camera stays still on its stand And it turns to take in the entire landscape around it, just turns full circle 360 degrees. And I think both of the shots that I'm thinking of do a good job of revealing more about the location than just a single straight on medium close up shot could do. Um, And they both take place at I think crucial turning points in the story. So the second one just shows the entire village celebrating a wedding. Um, And it feels kind of small and 
or not insignificant, like really significant for being so small because so much of what we've seen up until this point has been just the grandeur of the natural beauty around these people. But the first shot, the first time that this happens to my recollection is a moment where um, most of the hiking party has left and we're kind of left alone in the middle of a meadow just waiting for something to happen and the camera slowly starts to turn and there's nobody else around and the birds start to sing and you get just an absolute cacophony of so many different kinds of birds you can't really tell what all of them are but they're there and they're singing because nobody else is around um feels very joyful and and i think it really speaks to the fact that up until this point lucas has seen iceland as being completely inhospitable and i think he's going to continue to see iceland as hospitable even after this moment but the movie belies that by showing the facts of the natural beauty and lushness and just how packed full of life this place is when nobody else is around to observe it. I don't know. I I think it's quite gorgeous. Yeah, there's and that's sort of the an example of how this is kind of a spiritually tinged uh, film in the way it shoots those landscapes like there's humanity is not all there is Mm -hmm. in, in this film's Iceland. Um, and we get uh, a taste of that in that shot you just mentioned, which I, I love as well, where the, the people move off and then we don't move off with the people. We just got to, we get to kind of experience what is maybe one of film's greatest gifts is the 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 chance to observe a space without it knowing that it's being observed, to be in a space you know, uh, visually, but not physically. So you can sort of experience it without changing it by your presence. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's kind of, that's kind of wondrous that this film kind of gives us that. Yeah. It's a remarkable gift and honestly, a a really remarkable film. Um, it might be my favorite that I've seen in theaters this year so far. I I don't know about you, but I did hear comparisons to Bergman and Herzog. That feels like high praise. I mean, I, I did like it. I don't know the... I think that it goes to really interesting thematic places. Dramatically, I think, and I think you hinted at this as well, where the conflict between Lucas and Ragnar is interesting thematically, but is a little bit slippery or, or maybe indistinct when I'm trying to you know parse it on a character and drama level. Mm. But, you know, it's a quibble. I think it's a strong film. Excellent. Well, listeners, that is our review of the Danish film Godland. It's uh, currently in limited release. It might be hard to find in some parts of the country, but it's definitely worth checking out whenever it hits streaming. So if you are one of the, the lucky few who have had chance to see this already and have thoughts about it, let us know. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at Pod. You can also catch up with us at Pod on Letterboxd as well. Don't go anywhere. We're going to hear some of Sarah's thoughts about the True False Film Festival and then on to my night at Mods. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, it seems appropriate that in an episode about faith and, uh, you know, questions about the church and unhealthier versions of Christianity out there that we would have heard from Ron Sturry about a film along those lines that came out last year called Women Talking. Oscar-nominated Women Talking. Oscar-nominated. We'll see uh, this weekend if it takes home the big prize at the 
Oscar ceremony, but Ron wrote in via email to share his thoughts on that film. He says, my wife and I yesterday watched Women Talking. I wanted to see if I missed your review of it, and apparently I did not as I see no review, nor is it on either of your best movies of 2022. I'm pretty surprised given what a mesmerizing and thought-provoking movie it is. Sarah Polly's beautifully restrained direction of her adapted screenplay was so affecting to us, I'm still almost constantly thinking of its themes. Evil under the guise of religion, forgiveness, silencing of women in the name of faith and rebellion against patriarchy. And when the women sang, Nearer my God to thee, it brought up such deep emotions, we both wept several times. Mm. The film deals seriously with religion in a way that most Hollywood films do not. Thanks for those thoughts, Ron. You know, I I did, uh, I can't speak for Sarah, but I uh, did get a chance to catch up with women talking towards the end of last year. I, I think it left me a little bit colder than uh, it left Ron. I admired it more than I loved it. I liked the performances. I found the the directing to be a little bit stagey, so it didn't fully work for me on the same level that Ron found it, but it definitely has some high points for sure. Yeah, um, I like this movie. I, I didn't fully love it, but I like it and I admire it, I think, for some of the similar reasons that you do too. Um, somebody else, though, uh, Sam Van Hogren of, of Film Spotting actually referred to this as 12 Angry Men, except the entire human experiment is on trial. Mm. And so the staginess, I think, works for me because it's a little bit less of a play and a little bit more of a courtroom drama without, you know, the American justice system behind it necessarily. So I, I think it's a very good movie. And I'm really glad that you caught up with it. It, um, because I did find it very touching and I appreciated the dialogue had some problems with the cinematography but I still think it's a very good movie <laughs> yeah well I mean a reasonable people can differ on that Ron obviously loves it quite a bit and mm -hmm. I assume that uh, he'll be rooting for women talking come Oscar night. So thanks for writing in, Ron. We really appreciate your thoughts as always. But maybe now we can segue to uh, another woman talking. <laughs> uh, I, I stole actually stole that uh, joke from Sarah, so can't take any credit for that. Sarah, you did go to a film festival over the past weekend, repping both Brightwall Dark Room and maybe seeing and believing a little bit oh, on yeah. the side. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. What'd you see? Uh, what's, what's true false's whole deal? Uh, what'd you find special about it? Yeah. So, um, true false is kind of the preeminent documentary film festival in the United States where a lot of documentaries premiere. It's where a lot of documentaries are able to find their homes and find distributors. So, I went for the first time. I'd never been before, um, but I'd heard good things and I was really curious about it. So I was really glad that I was able to just take the weekend and spend some time in Columbia, Missouri at True False. So it, it feels kind of like a hidden gem because it's in, you know, this college town. They sort of transform the entire like downtown arts section of the city into this film festival. Everything's totally walkable. So you're able to just pick up and go from one theater to the other. They transform a couple of churches and a couple of other like locations into movie theaters for the course of the week. Um, and so I just got to sit down and watch a ton of documentaries back to back to back, which was pretty wonderful. So um, I think we've mentioned on the podcast before that documentaries are something that I want to see more of. Um, I think actually Ron Sturry wrote in asking why we hadn't covered documentaries quite so much over the course of the last year. So I took that to heart. 
and went to True False. Um, and I saw a few that I would love to see get picked up and distributed because I think just everybody should have the chance to watch these. So um, there were a lot of documentaries that kind of served almost as memoirs or portraits of somebody else. A lot of documentaries that kind of were the documentarian working through a parent-child relationship. So if you've only seen documentaries that are just, you know, talking heads, explaining some event that happened in the past, um, that's kind of like expecting every single fiction movie to just be an action movie. Um, Documentaries are just as wildly varied, I think, as other, you know, fiction films can be. So there were a lot of different modes and forms of storytelling. But one of the things that I picked up on was the idea of kind of reckoning with one's past in order to find a future. Um, True False's theme this year, it's their 20th year, it's their 20th anniversary, was This is a Test. So they were kind of looking at films that were about, you know, the the human experiment or about reiterating and failing and learning from those failures. So saw a couple of really good movies kind of in that vein. Um, One of my favorites, uh, which I really, really hope gets picked up, Um, is this film called Red Herring, which is by a documentarian named Kit Vincent, who was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor four or five years ago and immediately picked up a movie camera and started to film his family and their reactions to his diagnosis. So um, Kit's still around um, and he's touring with this film and he made the film primarily as a portrait first of his father as his father came to terms with his son's diagnosis and with the knowledge that his son is likely going to pass away before he does which is very heavy stuff um and so kit started by documenting his father picking up different hobbies and trying out new things as he as he's attempting to come to terms with that and in the course of the documentary we get to learn a lot about kit's father and he's a very funny man like there's a very like dark humor thread that runs between these two people but they're very similar um, in builds and in likeness and in their senses of humor and so um the movie starts as a portrait of Kit's father, but it kind of turns back in on Kit himself and as him as he begins to grapple with the idea of his own mortality as well. So fascinating movie, fascinating portrait of some very interesting people um, and just a really graceful way, I think, to contemplate mortality and familial relationships. So that's that, I think, is one of the big standouts for me. It sounds good. So it, it... Sounds a little bit like uh, Christian Johnson's uh, Dick Johnson is Dead. Uh, totally very different. Loved that film. Loved it, loved it. So mm-hmm. sounds like I might <laughs> be checking that red herring out pretty soon if it ever gets picked up. I would hope so, yeah. I know Dick Johnson is Dead played True-False the year that it came out as well. Um, totally, they're very different. I think they're they're doing different things, but thematically very similar in, in some interesting ways. Um, another one that I saw that is formally very different is called uh, Sarasi Zan, which is about, it's, it's also called Crossing Voices. It'll probably be released in the United States under the name Crossing Voices. Um, but it's about a collective of farmers in Mali who had emigrated to France and then discovered that they were not going to be given the same opportunities that other people were given there, largely because of racism. Um, And so they moved back to Africa and they developed a farming collective that essentially rejects a lot of the tenets of capitalism. So it's a large group of people who are working together, basically subsistence farming in a place where 
it had been tried before using different methods by colonizers and none of those methods had worked. And so they, they start farming using the methods that their grandparents and great grandparents would have used instead, um, using the tools that are available to them. And uh, it's just a fascinating piece of history. It's very dense. Um, it gets into the reasons why um, France is willing to accept undocumented workers and then also not provide for them. It gets into the history of colonization in Mali. Um, it, it gets really heavily detailed. And so there's a lot of information that's just kind of packed into two hours. But if you're at all interested in highly detailed history, it's a really fascinating movie too. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the final movie that I really loved, and I think this is my favorite of the fest um, altogether, is called Last Things. This one's almost more of a, a kind of a tone poem of a movie. It's only 50 minutes long. And it's an exploration of what is going to happen and how the universe will eventually come to an end by looking at geology and how the universe was created in the first place. So looking at the rocks, looking at the evidence that um, we have from science, and exploring the way that different rocks and um, the earth was formed. And um, it, it kind of, it's very poetic. It's mostly made up of footage of rocks and scientific diagrams and very poetic voiceover. And I didn't expect scientific diagrams to make me cry, but this movie did manage to do that in context, especially because these diagrams start flashing across the screen as the voiceover essentially goes through what is a retelling of the creation story, um, slightly retold in a way that isn't just a, a direct quotation of scripture, but it is still, you know, talking through like first there was nothing and then there was light and then the animals came and then humanity and so on. So, and it was kind of comforting because it's a recognition that everything's going to end someday and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And it's, I'm going to start crying, like <laughs> even just thinking about it. I, I really, truly loved this movie. It's very weird. Um, but last things is also worth seeking out. I really hope it gets a release. That sounds extremely like my jam. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing that. I share your, your hope that it gets picked up by a distributor and, uh, finds an audience, uh, because, I don't know. I, I love I love that kind of stuff. So Sarah, thanks for sharing your uh, trip to True False uh, and giving us a few new additions for our watch lists down the line. And now it's time for the watch list segment. Longtime listeners know that this is the part of the show where we one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then we talk about it. So Sarah, it was your turn to pick a film to pair with Godland, and you picked Eric Romare's 1969 My Night at Mods. I was looking forward to this one because this is my first Romare, so I was looking forward to being introduced to a filmmaker I hadn't seen before. This particular film has the following synopsis. It follows Jean-Louis, a serious-minded Catholic who works as an engineer, reads philosophy and mathematics books for fun, and desires romantic companionship even as he seems unsure about how to find it without transgressing his earnestly held principles. But as life reaches an inflection point with the titular night he spends with Maud, a divorcee who is as alluring as she is intellectually formidable. Their late-night conversation lights a fire under Jean-Louis to act, but what action he will actually end up choosing is a question mark until close to the end of the film. So, Sarah, there's some pretty obvious parallels in the thread of spirituality that runs through this film, as with Godland. But I'm wondering if there's uh, any other uh, connections that you thought of when you 
picked out my night at mods to pair with godland in this episode i was really looking for a thematic um exploration of someone's faith being challenged and being shaped from unexpected angles um but here's where i confess i have i have of course had seen my night at mods before and i like it i'm not 100 certain that i get it so this was my roundabout way of getting to have a conversation about this movie um in a way that is you know intellectually rigorous as is the you know titular night at mods so i'm curious to know how you came away with your first encounter with romare yeah it was um I, I I liked this film a lot, and I think it's down to the the performances. I really, mm. my only exposure to Tritzingyan was as uh, an older actor in Kishlovsky's uh, Red. He's really good in that film. I was looking forward to catching up with him, uh, kind of as a as a younger man. I also really liked Francoise Fabian as as Maud here, and I think uh, watching this for the first time, I. I'd be really interested to hear Richard Linklater talk about Romare mm. to see if the conversation that takes place between these two characters over that night had any sort of influence at all in the way that he shaped the conversations between the lead couple of his before trilogy. Mm-hmm. Just kind of the the way they they verbally spar with each other, the way they kind of circle around various questions, their the way their body language kind of suggests an ebb and flow of their conversational dynamic and the way they are drawn to each other. Mm. I, I found that really engaging to watch. I I'm glad that you picked it, to be honest. <laughs> Good. I it it surprised me in the in the places it went uh after that conversation. I kind of came into it thinking like this is going to be the conversation's gonna be the main event and uh everything everything else is going to be denouement after that. But there's a lot of story that happens after their conversation. I think what I came away from is really liking the ideas that these characters talk about. Also just liking how the film sketches a portrayal of, you know, what happens when you have the the quote-unquote life-changing conversation. Well, it might change your life, but there's a life to be lived after that. Mm-hmm. And I liked how the film captured that. Yeah, yeah. I love the way that that conversation is shot, too, because it, like you said, it ebbs and flows and there's a lot of give and take. And I appreciate that these two characters are sort of circling each other intellectually as they're talking about affairs of the head and heart. And they're still kind of feeling through, I think, a lot of what they believe, especially Jean-Louis. I, I feel like he's he's rigid. He knows what he believes, or at least he thinks he knows what he believes, but he's trying to figure out a good way to live into that in a way that's true to his principles. And I think sometimes you just, if you're feeling that particularly rigid, I think you need somebody to challenge you, even if it's just to reinforce those beliefs. Um, and I appreciate that Maud takes that with a sense of humor and she's she's not interested in tripping him up in a sort of a gotcha way necessarily although there are a couple of gotcha moments in the conversation that they have um but i think part of the reason why she engages him in the first place is because she genuinely finds him interesting and that i think is part of what keeps me so interested in this movie too because it's a very talky movie there's a lot of heady philosophy that's being thrown around here And all of the characters are genuinely interested in the philosophy that they're discussing, and they're interested in the ramifications of that philosophy. And I think that 
by extension makes the entire movie much more interesting because it's not just spouting words in order to spout words. It's not these characters preaching Romer's like own personal philosophy necessarily. It's genuinely multiple people just trying to feel their way through what they think they believe and then what you get from that as a result. That feels very abstract to me, but it's also, you know, a, a particularly talky movie where most of the time it's just two characters facing each other and having a conversation. It's not particularly showy, but I think the cinematography here is still quite good without having to be showy. There's there's a very like clear, bright gray. The movie's shot in black and white and the camera isn't doing anything to like attempt to enhance or goose the conversation. It's just there to bring you that conversation. But the blocking and the way that these characters move around and the way that they're framed kind of keeps that conversation flowing and you can kind of tell what the dynamic is between them based on where they're standing in the room. So it's a very thoughtful portrait of several very interesting conversations where I think if I were in the same room as these characters and they weren't as interested in the things that they're spouting off about, I would have checked out long ago. Um, but it keeps me engaged, which I appreciate. I mean, I think that's why I was put in mind of Linklater is because uh, those those before films, you know, if you try to give a plot synopsis of them, it's basically like, well, two people meet each other and then just walk around talking. Yeah. And and But the conversation is sort of the main event, just watching them talk and, and not even not even necessarily buy into what they're saying because the characters themselves don't necessarily buy into it. It's just the act of, of conversing and, and pinging off each other is sort of, that's, that's the meal right there. And mm -hmm. I think the way that Romare shoots this conversation is he, he shoots in long takes, but he doesn't, he doesn't even uh, shoot them kind of in a two shot. Um, he doesn't cut between them. Oftentimes he'll keep the camera on one of their, one character's face. So we get all of them talking and then we hear the other person respond, but we don't cut away to the other person. We get to see uh, Maude or Jean-Louis both speak and also listen. Mm. And I think that's uh, an interesting way for Romare to zig rather than zag where in, in a way it gives us a a fuller picture of them as people that they're not just sort of a bundle of ideas they're also people who uh are are listening and being affected by what they hear and that you, you get to see them not just say things but also receive things and be subtly changed by them or or at least think about whether they want to be changed by them mm. and i think that that's an interesting way to shoot a conversation. It's one that you don't see very often, um, which, you know, it, it's understandable why the conventional, you know, shot reverse shot conversational dynamic is used. I like how Romare doesn't go for that. And that makes the film feel fresh and interesting and, and almost, I don't want to say spontaneous, but because it's not cut up as much with, with so much editing, it feels much more naturalistic and like you're just sort of watching two people kind of talk a little bit and maybe maybe they don't even fully believe what they're saying but that's that's not really the point i i just i like how he's low-key able to capture these characters sort of not being entirely serious people mm -hmm. <laughs> but also being they 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 think very seriously about things 
but they aren't entirely consistent either. And I think that's what makes them flesh and blood people rather than bundles of ideas that Romare just wants to run through a screenplay. That's I think that's one of the things that threw me the first time I watched this movie is that these characters are a little bit self-contradictory. So they're throwing a lot of ideas at the wall and kind of seeing what sticks. And I think it's interesting like as an argument on an academic level because these characters are willing to just try to say something and then attempt to back it up and then potentially back down if they get called on it a little bit too Mm -hmm. much that makes the thread of conversation at for me at least a little bit more difficult to follow because I can see where the characters started and I can see where they've ended but following that thread of that conversation through the course of the evening is something that I've always find a little bit slippery and maybe it's supposed to be slippery because they're dealing with slippery ideas and they're not really fully settling on anything at any one given time. But that is something that I did find a little bit frustrating both times watching this. So I'm, I'm curious to know what you think about the bundles of ideas that are getting thrown around. So the thing, I think one of my favorite things about Jean-Louis as a character is um, he spends most of his his night with Maude just sort of talking about how, you know, he can't, you know, he's... It's Christianity is not just about intellectualism. It's it's about it's not just about following rules. It's a heart issue, right? You mm. know, I can't imagine being unfaithful to another person because when you when you truly love somebody, you're totally faithful to them uh, unto the end, essentially. You know, and that's true. It's it's a very Christian view of relationships. Uh, maybe not the most French <laughs> view. Uh, Maud is both very French and also an atheist, so she's sort of regarding this assertion of Jean-Louis with some amusement, but he's utterly earnest when he says it. Um, he's, but then after their conversation ends the next, the very next morning he goes out and he finds the blonde he's been obsessing over from a distance and talks to her, but he also kind of keeps, keeps one toe in Maud's life as well to sort of like, you can tell that he's not quite sure which one he wants to fully commit to. And that's, it's kind of a, it's a hypocrisy, but it's the sort of relatable hypocrisy that I think a lot of us can relate to where you espouse certain things and you do genuinely believe them, but living them out, that's the hard part. Uh, and especially for, you know, Christians, um, you know, that's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, it's a hard issue. It's a full, it's not just an intellectual exercise, much harder to actually change your own life to fit not only your principles, but the fact that you are a changed being. Mm. I, and I, I like that Romare lets his characters be that way. It does, I can understand, I was a little bit caught off guard because you kind of want Jean-Louis to have this, you know, this life-changing conversation and just sort of be a fully coherent character from then on, somebody who's just really legible as a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. But he's not because actual people aren't that way. And I kind of liked how Romare lets that that haziness persist in Mm. in the way he sketches out these characters. Yeah, haziness is a good way to put it. There's there's a moment fairly early on in the movie where Jean-Louis is talking about Pascal And he complains about how Pascal's austerity offends him. Like he takes it as kind of a personal affront that for Pascal, it's literally all or nothing. It's infinity or nothing. And at the same time, Jean-Louis is kind of espousing these very like strict rules for how he's going to govern his own life. And he can't really fully see the edges of where 
what he says ends and what where what Pascal says kind of begins. And it feels as though he sort of started to synthesize Pascal's own philosophy into his own life without even fully realizing it. So I do find that very amusing. Again, I think that kind of leads to a little bit of the slipperiness that's going on in there. But I'm glad that um, I'm glad that Romare doesn't really like linger on that all that much either. So you mentioned that the titular night and mods ends and then you still have like almost half the movie still left to go where we watch Jean-Louis kind of take that encounter and take it to heart in some interesting ways. And then also um, start to pursue the blonde that he's been obsessing over, who happens to be going to church with him. So, you know, Maude is an atheist. Maude is very skeptical about a lot of Jean-Louis' beliefs. And Francoise is the blonde that he sees at church. She's played by Marie-Christine Burrell. And um, it's interesting to watch Jean-Louis kind of come away from his conversation with Maude and kind of be pushed a little bit out of his almost paralysis, I think. Um, he's he's moved back to France after being abroad for some time. He's avoided meeting other people for the course of several months. And he very clearly is interested in this woman that he sees at church, but he's unwilling to make a move. And it kind of feels as though uh, the night at Mods is the catalyst that he needs in order to be able to make that life change. And yet... He's still kind of an incoherent human being who is making that change at the same time because he's still developing as a person as well. And I like that we get to spend a little bit more time getting to know Francoise. It isn't just a, I'm going to spend a night at this divorcee's house and then I'm going to go out and I'm going to go get the girl and then the movie ends happily for me. I like that that's messy. So that's one of the things that I do very much appreciate about this because it does feel like the course of the entire movie and the course of the conversation with Maude in particular is a challenge to Jean-Louis's beliefs, but it doesn't feel as though he's going to just make a sudden hard right turn change into becoming a changed person. He's just going to slowly change over time and develop over time. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of kind of the, the denouement as, as it goes, and then also the time skip that we get towards the end. So tell, tell me what you think of this read. So I think that, you know, there is that uh, a five-year time skip at the end of the film where we, we find out that uh, Jean-Louis has, has married Francoise, the blonde. Mm -hmm. um, Maude has, you know, moved out of the, out of the, out of the city uh, to another part of the country. They're no longer in touch and they just happen to run into each other at the beach. And over the course of that encounter, it becomes clear that Francoise and Maude also have a connection that is, is a little bit un unsavory. Uh, there, there's some infidelity that, that links the two of them. And um, when Jean-Louis has this, this recognition, he has the chance to... Um, make a, a move in a, in a conversation with his now wife uh, where he, he sets the record straight and justifies himself. Mm. And he chooses, and the choice he finally makes at the very end is he chooses not to. He, he decides that it would be best to not try to justify himself and in so doing kind of level the playing field a little bit between him and his wife and so, so that Francoise doesn't continue feeling this uh, this own guilt over uh, the the ways in which she and Maude have become entangled. And I think that in that moment, that's the little bit of grace that 
Jean-Louis has sort of been looking for in the very heavily intellectualized faith that he has at the beginning of the film, where he feels dissatisfied with how intellectual and calculating Pascal is, and he he you know wants his heart to line up with his principles, but he can't figure out how to do it. And at the end of the film, he discovers that he's going to just sort of let the truth slide a little bit, not not worry so much about the particulars and just do what is best for his relationship with another person. Hmm. And I think in that moment, I think that's when he finally kind of, it's a moment, it's a small moment of grace, even though it has, it, it's a moment that's also tied up with infidelity, not being entirely forthcoming. Um, that's That's all bound up in it. But that's kind of the moment where his faith stops being an intellectual exercise and, be, and becomes something that he lives out. Mm, I really like that read. I think I'd been caught off guard by it the first time I saw the movie. So I, I just kind of felt as though it was coming out of left field and I didn't really know what to do with that information. And the second time I saw it, I had completely forgotten that that was the ending of this movie. <laughs> so it caught me off guard again. So I don't know. Like I like that idea of being kind of surprised by grace and then being able to extend that to somebody else as well so i appreciate that read i feel like it made me appreciate this movie a little bit more oh well then the watch list has has served both of us i got exposed to a movie that i really like and uh our conversation helped you appreciate a little bit more works for me well listeners that is uh our review of my night at mods it is Currently streaming in a bunch of places on HBO Max, the Criterion channel. So it's still out there for you to experience. If you've had a chance to see it already, obviously, let us know your thoughts on email, Twitter, Letterboxd, wherever you want to engage with us. Next week, we are going to be pulling back from the very serious-minded faith films (laughs) to just... Just have some good old-fashioned dinosaurs. Speak for yourself. I feel like dinosaurs are a big faith issue in my life. I, you know, fair enough. It, it yeah. might be. We are going to be talking about the Adam Driver sci-fi film '65. I'm so excited for this movie. Uh, it, and I was trying to think of a good watch list pairing for it. I eventually settled on survival movies, and I think I've got a pretty good one to pair with it. We're going to be talking about J.C. Chandor's 2013 film. All is Lost, starring Robert Redford. I'm looking forward to being marooned on the sea with uh, Robert uh, again. So Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this, too. This is one of those movies that it was in conversation for the Oscars that year, mm-hmm. I think. And I think that was one of the first years where I was sort of cognizant that, like, good movies could be part of a conversation about the Oscars. So I'm excited to finally catch up with it. 10 years later, actually. Yeah, it's 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 10 year birthday. I didn't plan it that way, but it's, uh, you know, the time is right. It never had a chance at the Oscar, sadly, but we're going to give it its due next week. Excellent. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us again, listeners. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus.
Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.